Amen. How's everybody doing, church? Woo! It's so good to see all of you out here braving the temperatures and the, and the blacktop. I hope you brought your sunscreen or else you're all going to be sunburned. I'm, I'm pretty sure there's going to be some sunburn. That's okay, though. Um, this is our last week in the parking lot. And so while we have loved our time, uh, I, I have personally loved it. I think uh, it's been a lot of fun and it's been really different to do church in the way that we've done it at the drive-in theater and then here in the parking lot. Uh, as the months and the, the weeks get hotter, I am very much excited to get back into the AC and be able to enjoy church from there as well. And so uh, next week, all this week, we're going to be releasing all kinds of stuff and letting you know how it's going to work. I mean, it's not going to be too, too terribly different. I mean, we're all, the, the theater's already sort of situated for social distancing. The rows are very far apart. The chairs are very huge. And so if you leave that buffer chair, it should uh, give you that ample social distancing space. Um, and, uh, and then we'll just have some policies and procedures as far as cleaning and in uh, and, and our, and our legacy kids and littles areas and things like that. And so we'll be letting you know about all that uh, probably the next day or two if you just sort of keep an eye out on social media, keep an eye out on your email. If you're not signed up for emails from us, then go to our web, website, LegacyCity.Church. Go to the very bottom, and you can put in your email address there, and then you'll be uh, added to the email list. And uh, we'll make sure that you get all of that and all of that information, and there'll be people here next Sunday to kind of help walk you through it as well. But we are really excited uh, to be able to do that, and we're glad that you're here today. This is Memorial Day weekend. This is sort of the, not only is this Memorial Day weekend, which is just traditionally a weekend where a lot of people go on vacation, a lot of people go out of town, a lot of people go to the lake or go do something else. Not only that, but we have been in like quarantine for two and a half months, and this is sort of the first weekend where everything's really starting to open back up. And so, uh, so I know a lot of people are probably gone doing those things, but I'm so glad that you are here uh, to participate in what God has for us today and, and what he's already uh, done even through the worship and the prayer time. So uh, we are in the middle of our summer, or not in the middle, we just kicked off our summer scripture series. Really, we are only three verses in. Uh, last week, we kicked off our series on Hebrews, and we're going to be walking through uh, this book of the Bible all summer long. And in fact, it'll probably go even after summer. We're, we're, we, might, we might take a break and then pick it back up a little later. That's sort of the plan right now, because we definitely cannot make it through the entire book of Hebrews, 14 chapters, in, uh, in, in, in just these 12 or 13 or 14 weeks, however many it is. Uh, if last week was in the indication, we made it through three verses. So uh, we're, 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 gonna, we're probably going to pick it back up later and come back to it, but we're going to just power through as much as we can over these next uh, months, over the summer months. And um, this week, I am ambitious and I'm thinking that we're going to make it through 11 verses. That's my goal, 11 verses. We're going to get to the end of chapter 1, which is, uh, which, which is 11 verses from where we currently are. So before we get into it, I want to set the stage just a little bit. I wonder if you have ever heard of uh, this test, this thing called the Ishihara color test. So essentially, I, you know, if we were inside, I'd show you what it looks like on the screen, but I'll just describe it to you, and you can use your imagination. So essentially, the Ishihara color test is, are these plates that have uh, dots all over the plates of varying size and color, and um, the, the goal is, is for whenever you look at this plate, if you were 
not colorblind, if, you, if you're not color, you know, red, green, or any other color deficient in your vision, then you look at this plate and you can actually see a number or a shape in the plate. But if you are colorblind, if, or if you are, you know, color deficient in your vision, then, then when you look at it, you'll just see dots. Uh, everything will look the same and you won't be able to distinguish, you know, a number or a letter or a shape. And so, uh, even though the pattern is there, even though it's, it's clearly there to anybody else, when we look at it, we see it, oh, there's, that's clearly a 12, that's clearly a square, and we see the shape and we see what's going on, for, for those of us with normal color vision, for everybody else that, that does not have normal color vision, it's invisible, or, or it's extremely, you know, difficult for them to see. So on the plate... To someone with normal vision, numbers are clear as day. While those suffering from color blindness, it's right there in front of them and they can't see it. So here's the point that I'm trying to make as we open the text for today. Just because a person doesn't see something doesn't mean it's not there. Just because a person doesn't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. There's a, there's a line in one of, my favorite, uh, one of my favorite Christmas movies called The Santa Claus where... Um, and I think I've mentioned this before because I love it so much. Uh, there's this line where, where Charlie, Santa Claus, Tim Allen movie, uh, if you are younger than the age of like 17, maybe you've never heard of it, that's okay. Um, you probably don't even know who Tim Allen is, that's okay too. So uh, this is, so there's this little kid, Charlie, and he's, he's talking to his stepdad, Neil, and he says to Neil, he says, um, he's talking about, hey, have you ever, do, you, do you believe that there's a million dollars? Have you ever seen a million dollars? And he says, yeah, I believe that, but I've never seen a million dollars. And and he says, just because you can't see something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And, and, and that's, that's true of what we're going to talk about today. Now, uh, let me preface this. I take exception to using this phrase when it comes to God, okay, because we see God daily. We see God in the nature that surrounds us. We see God in, in, in the millions of stars, j- just the millions of stars that we can see with the naked eye at night. Uh, we see God in, in the healing miracles, and, and we see God in our own salvation. And so I don't use that phrase to apply to God uh, but because we see God every single day. But today we're talking about angels. And, and colorblindness is really what I think of when I think of this idea of, of angels. They are here. They are, they are here. They are around us. They are near. Scripture tells us this much. There's an example in 2 Kings of this. The, the prophet Elisha is, is outsmarting the king of Syria. Uh, God is allowing him to advise the king of Israel um, on Syria's plans even before they happen. So he's given special insight and, and, and to the point where the king, the king of Syria is like, this guy is listening to me in my bedroom because he knows the plans I'm making before I even make them and before I even give them uh, to, to, my, to my generals and to my army. And so what happens is the Syrian army goes to Dothan where Elisha is and they're going to they're gonna snuff him out and they're going to kill him because they're, they're tired of losing the battle and they want to go ahead and get rid of this guy. And so they surround uh, the city of Dothan with a massive army in 2 Kings uh, 6, verse 15, says this, When the servant of the man of God, this is, this is Elisha's servant, rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And when he opened his eyes, what he saw was a gigantic army surrounding the army that surrounded them. 
a massive army of, of, of God's angels that were surrounding and ready to fight on their behalf. And, and how incredible is that? He opened his eyes and he saw that the mountain was just full of horses and chariots of fire. And so there was literally an angel army surrounding this other army. And, and he couldn't see it at first. He was, he was colorblind to the angels. He couldn't see that they were there, but they were right in front of him. So he had this sense of, of colorblindness to the angels. And I think many of us are there today as well. I doubt many of us have seen an angel right in front of us, or, or at least maybe we haven't seen and known that it was an angel. So we had this kind of color blindness. They're there, but we, we, can't, we can't see right now. If you've been with us for a while, you might remember that we went through a series uh, last October called Angels and Demons, and we talked for like four or five weeks all about angels and all about all about demons, and we talked about their roles, and we broke down essentially everything we know about them over the course of four or five weeks. And so today I want to give you the cliff notes, sort of the Reader's Digest of some of that to make sure we're all up to speed um, before we jump into what we're talking about. But, but I, I do want to go ahead and read our text for today uh, so that we understand why we're talking about angels in the first place. And so uh, we're going to hit, we, we hit the first three verses last week, and we're going to and over the course of those three verses, over the course of those opening verses, the, the, the writer of Hebrews wrote from creation to new creation. And he puts Jesus right in the center of all of it. So right out of the gate, he's letting us know Jesus is supreme, Jesus is king, and Jesus is better. He's better than everything and anything. And then he transitions to this, starting in verse 4. So we're going to pick, pick this up in Hebrews 1.4. If you have your scripture journal or your Bibles or your phones and you want to follow along, uh, we're going to read, like I said, about 11 verses together. So... Uh, verse 4, Jesus, this is talking about Jesus, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and, and he shall to me, to be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, uh, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of a brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companions. Verse 10, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, but you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Would you pray with me? God, we love you so much, and we're so thankful for this time to read and, and just uh, expound on your word. And I pray right now that, Holy Spirit, you would do what I can't do, that you would speak through your text, that you would speak into the hearts and the souls of everyone listening right now, uh, and that they would hear your words and not mine, that they would understand you and not me, Father. Uh, I, I, we give you this time, and we pray that you would bless the hearing and the reading of your word today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, the title of today's sermon for those taking notes is Jesus is Better Than Angels. So last week is Jesus is Better, just blanket, and then we're going 
we're going to get a little bit more specific. Jesus is better than angels. And I know that sounds like a line from an argument you might hear from like a couple of kids. Like, angels are better. No, Jesus is better. And, 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 and listen, I get that. But, but as we'll see in these next few moments, that is the thrust of this passage. Jesus is better than the angels. But, but what angels are we talking about here? Are, are we talking about the L.A. angels of, of Anaheim? Nobody's talking about them because we have no sports. Um, no, we're not talking about them. Are we talking about uh, the angels that we see at Valentine's Day? Right? Like the little cherubs, the fat, fat little naked guys, or the, you know, they, I think sometimes they have a diaper or a loincloth on, and, and they're, they're sitting on a cloud, and they're just, they're just uh, love angels, right? They're just not quite. Here's, here's the thing. I think angels have been getting mistreated and mislabeled in pop culture ever since the Renaissance, maybe even before then. They have been turned into these, I mean, into these chubby infants floating on clouds, holding a bow and arrow, not even for killing, but for like shooting love into people's hearts, I guess. Or, or if you look at art, maybe you want to look at like some modern or even some contemporary art, you'll, you'll see angels are kind of depicted as a little, a little slimmer and, and, and almost like very soft and very feminine features because they're meant to soothe you and calm you. Can I remind you of something, church? When people in the Bible saw angels, their response was fear. When they first saw angels, they, were, they, were, they, were, they cowered. They probably wet themselves in abject terror of the sight of something so radiant, something that had been in the presence of the Lord. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and exalted in the temple, he, he also saw two angels hovering uh, above him, two seraphim, as they were called. Seraphim means burning ones. And so he sees these two seraphim, and they, and they had three sets of wings. How crazy is that? Kind of like a dragonfly. That's what I picture is like this, this crazy, weird, giant dragonfly. dragonfly. And so they're, they're floating up there, and they have these, these, these three sets of wings, and, and two fiery wings covered their faces, and two wings covered their feet, and the other two wings kept them afloat. And, and when, while they hung in the air, they sang, holy, holy, holy. That probably scarred Isaiah. He saw that, and that probably like, he, he probably had to go to therapy after that. Like, how wild and crazy is what I just saw? That would be traumatizing to most of us, to say the least. Angels are amazing. They are awesome beings. They are not what we think they are based on pop culture. And honestly, whatever you think they are in your mind, they are probably bigger and better and brighter than you could imagine. Now, the text has a lot to say about angels. Angels are mentioned over 100 times in the Old Testament. They're mentioned over 160 times in the New Testament. And so they hold a prominent place in Scripture and in, in our faith. It stands to reason that we need a decent understanding of angelology to be able to better understand what we're dealing with in this passage. And so let me just give you a few quick things. A lot of these are things, again, that we covered during the Angels and Demons series. You can go back and listen to that. I, think, I don't think it's for video. It wasn't video, but I think it's audio recorded on our website. But let me give you a few quick things. Angels are innumerable. Revelations 5.11 says uh, the, they number myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands. There's no telling how many angels there are. They, are. they are innumerable. In most cases, they're also invisible, such as a story that I mentioned a minute ago from 2 Kings with Elisha, or in Numbers 22 when the Lord opened Balaam's eyes so he could see the angel that blocked his path. 
they are invisible a lot of times. But when they are visible, they seem to take most often the, the form of men. Uh, so much so that a lot of times they're even mistaken for men. They're, they're mistaken for, for people. Sometimes they shine with a glorious light. Other times they appear as incredible dragonfly, fiery winged creatures. But, but no matter what they look like, though, we do have a pretty solid understanding of their role and what, what God has created them to be and what God has created them to do. Uh, their purpose, according to Scripture, I think there's, there's fourfold. Uh, they're, they're created to worship and praise God to communicate God's message to man. And in fact, the Hebrew word for angel is malak, and the Greek word is angelos, both mean messenger. So they're, they're literally created to be messengers. Uh, they minister to believers, Scripture tells us, and they will be God's agents in the final judgment and the second coming. So angels have a lot of power. They have the power to subdue armies. They have the power to uh, deliver believers they have the power to, uh, to bring good news, and they carry believers away at death. They are present with the church, and they surround those who fear the Lord, and they protect them. This is all things that Scripture says that angels are and, and that angels do. Angels are pretty amazing beings. They wield some incredible power, and they serve at the will of God Almighty. But despite all of these incredible things that I just mentioned, their significance is Hells in comparison to Jesus Christ. Jesus is better than the angels. That's essentially what our writer is trying to tell us. That's what our author of Hebrews is trying to tell us in these, in these words. So why does he want us to know that? Why did he want the readers in 70-ish AD to know that? Why does he spend the entire opening part of this letter, of this chapter, talking about the superiority of Jesus over the angels? Well, we have to dig into the historical, cultural context of the time to understand that a little bit. We have to dig in for just a second to get the answer to that question. So, so firstly, I think it's two, two reasons. Firstly, the Hellenistic Jews that the author was likely writing to uh, were facing a lot of pressure. All right, they were facing a lot of pressure, and many were honestly on the brink of lapsing back into Judaism. All right, they were going to fall back into their old ways. They were going to fall back into their old, their old belief system because their current belief system was honestly just too hard. All right, they, on, on one side, they had Nero's perse persecution of Christians, and, and, and he, was, he was wreaking havoc in the Christian world. And then on the other side, they had their former brothers and sisters at the synagogue that were essentially disowning them. And they were, they were putting pressure on them to, to drop this charade, to drop this act, and to, to stop talking about Jesus as, as some prophet or, or as some Messiah and, and just come back into the fold. And so they were literally in between a rock and a hard place, right? They were being ostracized and hated on by the Jewish brothers, and they were being murdered and persecuted by, by Nero and by, by the Romans, So it would have been really easy to compromise. Maybe Jesus was an angel. Maybe even the best angel. We can, we can live with that. Maybe he was the very best and brightest angel, but not God on earth. Saying something like that might get you accepted back into the synagogue. It might relieve some of the social pressure mounting against the Christ followers. 
And, and, and even more tantalizing than that is you, you didn't even have to really denounce Jesus in order to, to, to get there. You just, you just had to basically tweak your, your, your view a little bit. Right? It's just a different, it's not an outright denial of Christ. It's just a different affirmation of his greatness in the form of an angel. I think we can somewhat identify with this situation. Because the supremacy of Christ brings tension in our everyday lives. If we're, if we're doing it right, if we're, if we're living this Christian life the way that it should be lived, and if we're having the conversations that we should be having, then the supremacy of Christ is going to bring tension into our lives. The world balks at the concept and the aspect of our faith that says that Jesus is the only way. Whenever we say Jesus only, that ruffles feathers, right? That gets, that gets people worked up. That gets people upset. Now more than ever, Christians are becoming pariahs, becoming outcasts. We are labeled close-minded and, and intolerant because we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and none can come to the Father except through him. And to top it off, some of that heat, some of that pressure is coming from inside the church. Rock, hard place. That's what we're dealing with. But here's the thing, we don't have to outright deny Christ to get along either. Instead, we just affirm that he was a really good man. Maybe even the best man. Maybe he was a prophet. Possibly even heroic for dying for his beliefs. He was a, a martyr. But certainly not God on earth. I think collectively, believers are tempted with this. We're tempted to just slide off of that point, Jesus only, and say, Jesus mostly. Jesus probably. How much more would the Hebrew Jews, would the Hellenistic Jewish Christians at this point in time, how much more would they be willing to compromise when they're faced with actual death, actual torture, actual persecution, murder by lions, murder by being burned alive. All they had to do was shift their thinking, shift their perception of Jesus from son of the most high to angel, and they're spared. Another issue in the church is not just from, uh, in the church of the day, is not just from social pressure, but also from faulty teaching and understanding. Uh, there's some literature from the intertestamental period, which uh, is just the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We call that the, it's the intertestamental period, or, or it's also called the Second Temple Judaism. That's another way that people refer to it. And during this time, there was a heavy emphasis on angels in all the writings. And some was good, and some was in error. All right, they, were, they were thought of as, as God's messengers, which is true, which is good. Um, and, and they were also thought of as Israel's divine protectors, which is not necessarily scriptural. That's not necessarily uh, the way that they were particularly meant to be viewed. It was thought that they would come as a physical army and fight on behalf of Israel and rescue her from capture, which is, to me, ironic because Israel is pretty much always captured, like, all the time. And so they, but they thought that. They had this, this thought that this is what the angels were going to do. The Second Temple, temple literature uh, talks about personal angels a good bit, like we each have our own personal 
angel. This, 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 we might call this, and we might think of this idea as guardian angels, which, which isn't necessarily unbiblical, and there is evidence to support something of that, of that aspect and of that view, but uh, in the way that they were leaning into it was a little bit uh, too much. Essentially, angels were being elevated in status dangerously close to, or in some cases, even surpassing Christ himself. And so the writer of Hebrews wants to show them that Jesus is not simply an angel. He is not on par with the angels. Jesus is far better than the angels. And he weaves together this mosaic of Old Testament texts that powerfully demonstrate the supremacy of Christ over the angels. In, this, in the process, he's going to give us five ways that Christ is better. And so we're going to talk about five different ways that Christ is better than the angels based on these 11 verses. So if you're taking notes, uh, I think I have these in somewhat point format. We'll see. Um, the first way that Christ is better is in by name. Jesus has a superior name. Verse 4 says it simply. Jesus, I'm adding Jesus in from the previous verse, having become as much superior to angels as the name he, was in, he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. His name is better than theirs. And then he quotes from two Old Testament verses to demonstrate this. Uh, the first part of verse 5 is from Psalm 2-7, and the second part is from 2 Samuel 7-14. Jesus had been given the name, capital S, Son. Now, obviously, Jesus was always God's Son. From the beginning of time and, and prior to that, he's always been the Son. He's always been the Son, and God has been his Father. But that phrase, today I have begotten you in verse 5. For which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? And in that, in that particular verse, which is taken, again, out of Psalm 2, um, it refers to Christ's exaltation as son after the resurrection. Whereas it's said in Romans 1 that he would, uh, he would be declared the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. So it's a fulfillment of the messianic prophecy from Psalm 2, and that's what they're talking about in, in, in Romans 1, and that's what we're talking about here. Son is Jesus' eternal name. It was exalted from him in his resurrection. The writer is saying no angel ever had that. An angel might be called a, a son of God. The sons of God, they're casually referred to generically in Job chapter 1 as sons of God, but they are not named son of God. They are messengers. They are witnesses, God's agents, but they cannot fulfill the role of son of God. And the second quote is from 2 Samuel. This is a well-known messianic passage at the time. They would have known this and they would have understood this uh, as being a messianic passage, which means that it's, it's one of the Old Testament texts that foreshadows Jesus Christ. It points to Jesus. And this is actually uh, from a part of Scripture known as the Davidic Covenant, which states that, that after David's death, his son would build a house for God and establish a royal throne that would last forever. Now, it obviously wasn't David's literal, actual son, uh, that, that did that, it, it, but it was his son further down the genealogy line, being Jesus of Nazareth. And so the author brings this passage up because the readers would have been so familiar with this, and, and they would have, he would have wanted them to know that the sonship of Jesus doesn't only refer to him as the eternal son of God, but also fulfillment of the messianic son, the, the fulfillment of the Davidic promises, which again, the angels cannot do. Only Jesus 
can fulfill those promises. And so he's, he's kind of going back into the Old Testament. He's going back into the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that these Hellenistic Jewish Christians would have known. And he's going back to that and he's saying, hey, uh, let me give you some verses that you already know. Let me, let me give you these, let me pull up these scriptures and these passages that you know really well, and let me show you how those point to Jesus as being better. The second indicator that Jesus is better is seen through worship. And, and here's a point that I guess you could write down for this. Jesus has a higher honor than the angels. Verse 6 says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world... He says, let all God's angels worship him. These are uh, the final lines of the Song of Moses, which is found in in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 32, verse 43. In the Old Testament, this was referring to the worship of Yahweh. But at this point, we understand, and the author of Hebrews argues that Jesus is Yahweh. Who, Who is Yahweh? He is the Holy One of Israel. Yahweh is the Lord of all, the light of the world, the way of truth, the, the, the only God, the Savior of the world, the true bread from heaven, the resurrection and the life. Yahweh is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh, and he is worthy of all worship. And that's exactly what the author is trying to convey and portray to everyone right now. And what did the angels do in this instance when presented with this fact. The only thing they can do, they worship Christ. They worship him at his incarnation in Luke chapter 2. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. Jesus was worshiped in eternity past. He was worshiped during his 33 years on earth, and he is worshiped in eternity present. The author's argument is so clear. The angels worship Christ. It's not Christ who worships the angels. Okay, the angels declare the birth of Christ. It's not Christ who declares the ministry of the angels. The only, the only one that they can worship and the only one that they can lift up is God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so they worship him fully. Jesus has a higher honor than the angels. The third thing that we see is that Jesus also has uh, a superior status. The angels are servants, and Jesus, the Son, is sovereign. Angels are servants, and the Son is sovereign. He quotes Psalm 104 here in verse 7. Of the angels, he says... He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. This is really cool language. He may, like, you got to really think about it for a second. Maybe if you have a good imagination, you start to really, like, go some places with this. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds. That doesn't even make sense. How does he make them winds? Not wind, wind. And his ministers a flame of fire. So as angels become winds, maybe this is meant to be an image of angels and, and their swiftness and their secretive work, right? Like we, we can't see the wind, but we can feel its effects. It says the angels are a flame of fire. This could convey their purity, 
the, the, the flickering flame and the shifting of a, of a breeze could also speak to their changing ministries in contrast to Jesus' permanent position at the right hand of the Father. There's a lot of things you could read into it, but ultimately, they enjoy the presence of the Lord and they get to carry out his purposes, but they are still servants in God's court. They may become one with the wind in some kind of like spectacular fashion. They, they may become one with fire, like, like, like when the angel shot up through the flame of, of Manoah's sacrifice in Judges 13, he just went right up into the flame and became a part of the fire in Judges 13. But, but they are still only servants. And on the other hand, Christ the Son is eternally sovereign. This time the, the writer quotes Psalms 45, uh, verses 6 through 7. And we're reading in Hebrews 8, and this is where he's quoting it. But, the, but of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. His throne, his scepter, his anointing all point to his undeniable sovereignty. The throne speaks to his rule that will never end. The scepter, his authority will be executed in righteousness. The anointing, his anointing with the oil of gladness was truly the joy that was set before him. Angels very well may surround the throne of God, but the sun sits on the throne. Angels may be sent, but Christ is the anointed one. At his request, angels may take on wondrous forms. They could become seraphim 30 feet high or men 300 feet high. They could perform feats not only beyond the capacity of, of mankind, but beyond the imagination of mankind. But they are still servants. Jesus is eternally throned, sceptered, and anointed, sovereign over all. It's also worth uh, pointing out, and we, we won't really dig into this today. There'll be plenty of time in the course of Hebrews to dig into Trinitarian theology. Um, but it is worth noting and worth pointing out, and you might want to circle this and come back to it, that, that the Father calls, in verse 8, uh, the Father calls the Son God. So the Holy Spirit, through the author of Hebrews, continuously makes a case for the Trinity, for God existing and three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. There are so many things worth noting that I've passed over, glazed over, omitted, but we don't have time to note them all. Here's the fourth thing. The fourth thing is that Jesus has a superior existence. In this particular part of our, of our passage, the author is quoting from Psalm 102. And, and, and this is actually a lament. Psalm 102 is meant to be a, a lament. This is where the, the psalmist is crying out and he's, he's upset and he's frustrated at the plight of humanity and, and, and what he's going through and what the world's going through and, and what he sees around him. And, uh, and, but, but these verses that he used are at the end of that particular psalm when the psalmist has sort of turned the corner and, and, and he's hopeful of God's consistency and God's love. And so here's, here's what it says in Hebrews 10. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Wow, what a thought. 
I, I was talking about garments here. I was thinking I have holes in like at least four pairs of jeans right now. Like I probably shouldn't be wearing many of them because the holes are in very inconvenient places. I have, I have worn out so many pairs over the years and will likely wear out so many more. But while I might wear out 40 pairs of jeans in my lifetime, Jesus will remain the same for 40 lifetimes. For, for 40 times 40 lifetimes. Eternal and unchanged is our Jesus. This is meant to be a comparison for the angels. They are, they are temporal and created beings. They were, they were created by God, through God, for God. They were created by Christ, but Christ has willed them to be immortal. They are changeable and, and dependent on Christ. I have to imagine that, that to the suffering Jewish Christians at this time, I have to imagine that this message, this sermon that the Hebrews author is presenting must have been unbelievably encouraging and refreshing. Their world was not only changing, it was, it was falling apart. But their, their superior Christ remained the same, was steadfast, consistent, eternal and unchanging. Later in Hebrews, it says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In James chapter 1, it says that the Lord does not change like the shifting shadows. The angels are his creation, and so they can perish like any other thing in creation, but the sun is permanent. Creation is subject to change, decay, and destruction. The person of Christ is unchanging and unending. That's praiseworthy, church. And finally, we get to the last verse of today. And, and I think we made it. We made it 11 verses for the day. The last Old Testament callback from the author is Psalm 110. And, and Psalm 110 is quoted more often uh, in the New Testament than any other psalm for, for good reason. He started the argument at the very beginning, if you remember, with a rhetorical question. He said, to which of the angels has he ever said... And then he kind of gives you this rhetorical question. And he's going to end it the same way. Verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The main point of, of verse 13, Christ rules. The main point of verse 14, angels serve. Ultimately, Jesus has a better vocation. He has a superior status. And, and so I want to talk about for just a second your enemies as your footstool, because that's an interesting verse. That's an interesting passage. It communicates a couple things. It communicates absolute rulership, right? Now, the custom was for defeated kings to get down and, and sort of prostrate themselves before their conqueror and, and kiss their feet, the, the, the victor, the, the, the victorious king would then put his feet up on their neck and the captive would literally become his footstool. Not forever, but, but long enough to make a point. Long enough to show that, that he is victorious and he has absolute power and authority in that moment. This obviously humiliated the defeated king, but 
but it asserted that undeniable authority to the winning king. Joshua 10, 10.24 talks about it. Uh, so it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua that Joshua called for all men of Israel and said to the captains of the men at war who went with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew near and they put their feet on their necks. Jesus's rule is absolute. His sovereignty is unmatched. He has a superior status. He rules the universe. In contrast to Christ ruling, the angel's vocation is that of serving. And, and it might seem like the author or, or even myself are trying to put down angels in this sermon, but that's quite the opposite. Being a servant doesn't make their role a disgraceful one. Being a servant doesn't make them a disgrace or make them any, any less than what they are. It, it's just simply inferior to the son's vocation of ruling the universe. As amazing as angels are, Jesus is better. They can't compare to Christ. And so the ruler of the universe, Jesus, he sent all angels, as verse 14 tells us, to be ministering spirits. The actual force behind uh, the Greek, the original Greek, is that they are perpetually being sent out to help God's people one after another. Our superior Christ has assigned his angels to minister to you. And if he wills, he can deliver you anytime, anywhere he wishes. Christ is superior to everything. He is better than everything, including awesome angels with, with fire wings and fire swords. He is your ever-present help in your hour of need. And, and like the author's plea in the letter to the Hebrews, don't make Jesus less than he is. Don't bring his status down. Don't bring his sonship down. Don't lower his standard down. He is superior to everything. His name is above every name. His place is above everything. He holds the universe together. And oh, by the way, you know those like, dope, shape-shifting, fire-winged creatures called angels, he made them, and they serve him, and they worship him, and they do what he wants them to do. Come on, somebody, you might, you, you might, you might have not come in here today thinking angels are better than Jesus, but hopefully you're leaving today knowing that you can celebrate the sovereignty of Christ. He is Lord of all. He is King of kings. He is everything that we need him to be, and so much more. And there is nothing that has anywhere close to the power of Christ, even these awesome, incredible, amazing beings called angels. Let me pray for us, and we're going to continue to sing and worship today. We love you, God. We're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for your, your angels. We're so thankful that you created this, this, these beings. You created this race of individuals to show us how amazing and mighty and incredible and beautiful you are. They are your servants and they worship you. But God, they can't hold a flame to you. Jesus, you are so much better. You're better than anything we have on this earth and you're better as we talked about in this passage than anything outside of this earth. There is no higher authority. There is no higher power. There is no higher God than you, Jesus. God, I pray that that would sink into our hearts today. Maybe we're not dealing with 
the struggle that maybe some of these Hellenistic Jewish Christians were dealing with. We, we're not afraid of falling into torture and murder. We're not afraid of being ostracized by our fellow, our brothers and our Jewish brothers and sisters. We're not, we're not falling into that category. And maybe we don't even, we don't even think the angels are better than you, but maybe we are leaning into something where we think something on this earth is better than you. Maybe we think money is better than you. Status is better than you. Maybe we think that relationship is better than you. But God, if you are better than these fire-winged, shape-shifting, invisible until they don't want to be creatures called angels, then how much better are you than our worldly, earthly desires? The things that we lean on all the time. So God, today we praise you. We magnify you, we glorify you, we lift you up, we give you all the authority, all the, all, the, all the praise and the honor that you deserve. You are sovereign and you are king. You are everything and you are better than everything. And so God, today we praise you. We're gonna stand to our feet and we're gonna worship. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.